Welcome to the Startup Grind Podcast. Starting a company is not for the faint of heart. They're always questioning, 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 tweaking, tweaking, tweaking. Where we talk to entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and thought leaders about how to build a great company. Like my friends, like you think you're crazy. I think you gotta be a little nuts. And change the world in the process. We optimize for impact instead of profit. It's never been a more exciting time to be an entrepreneur. From Startup Grind chapters across the globe. The chapter director for Cape Town. Boise, Idaho. London. Mala, Palestine. Guangzhou, China. And delivered to you every Monday and Wednesday. It's a startup grind. Hey there and welcome to Monday's episode of the Startup Grind podcast. Today we have a very special conversation from Startup Grind's first big event outside of Silicon Valley, Startup Grind Europe, held at the Central Hall Westminster in London. Eric Schmidt, the now chairman of Alphabet and former CEO of Google from 2001 until 2011, speaks on stage with Startup Grind's founder, Derek Anderson. Eric's credentials and biography expectedly take a long time to describe, so here's an excerpt. In addition to his well-documented role at Google, Eric is a founding partner at Innovation Endeavors, founder of Tomorrow Ventures, chairman of the New America Foundation, he is on the board of The Economist Group, the U.S. Foundation for Inspiration and Recognition of Science and Technology, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the National Academy of Engineering, and the Institute for Advanced Study. Eric has been the CEO of MicroFocus, CTO of Sun Microsystems, CEO of Sun Technology Enterprises, and a principal at Bell Laboratories. Eric has served on the board of Apple and Siebel Systems. He received his undergraduate degree from Princeton University and his graduate and doctoral degrees from UC Berkeley. Let's listen into an illuminating conversation with one of the world's richest and most powerful people on stage live in London. Well, we're going to give this Guinness Book of World Records thing a shot, so we're going to start it now. And I love being the subject of a contest. So we'll see how it goes. Um, Eric, thank you so much for being here. You've had a, had a busy week. Absolutely. Well, startups are rushing faster than ever. But, uh, you know, I think there's a bunch of things we want to talk about. The first thing is you get, you get so much credit for being a, a brilliant business mind. And I think you get, uh, you don't get enough credit for being really a brilliant, uh, technology mind. And, and the, the background that you had, um, you know, working at Novell, working at Bell Labs, working at Xerox, um, you know, to that point in your career, when you met Larry and Sergey, I wonder, um, what led you to choose that opportunity next? What, what about them was so different that, um, that made you say, okay, this is the next thing for me to do? Well, in my case, I'd been working at Novell, and I was invited to visit Larry and Sergey, who had, they invited me to their little office. They had all this food on the table, which had been prepared by the Google chef, which I thought was rather odd. And they had my background on the whiteboard, which they were projecting. And they proceeded to examine me in terms of my ideas and the technology we were building, which they disagreed with completely. And I thought, well, that's a very nice meeting. And I realized as I left, and it was curiously in an old Sun building, um, that it was the most interesting conversation I'd had in a decade. And that's why I joined. Could it have gone another way? Was there a moment that you looked at that, if you look back on that and said, if this has happened, I wouldn't have taken it, or this, if this had happened... I wouldn't have gotten it. Are there moments like that? I think from my perspective, because I'd already run a large organization, exactly. I wanted to work in a very small, very, very smart organization, and I figured Google would be that. You know, God knows it came out differently. But what I learned, what I learned in this process is that if you can, there's, there's always people smarter than you. There's always people who just think more clearly than you. And if you can find such a person, align yourself with them. Um, in this case, these two young men are, you know, they're, you know, they're in their 20s, right? 
and they're awfully precocious. And I haven't had that tough an argument from you know young men in a long time. And I thought, this is it. You know, you just knew. Um, and these people are rare, and we now know them as the great founders in our industry, and I'm sure some of them are here in the audience. If you find such a person, work with them, work for them, manage them, do whatever it takes. What, what, are, what do you think are some of the hardest things about working with founders or entrepreneurs? What, where do you find the most friction or the, the most difficulty? Well, the stereotype of founders is brilliant, aggressive, headstrong, clear, willing to take on risks that nobody else does. Uh, that also means often that they have to learn things in their own way. So if you say, by the way, if you do that, it's illegal, they'll say, really? As opposed to, yes, <laughs> okay? So sometimes you have to have the patience to let people uh, discover things. Um, in the early, early months at Google, there was a, an employee who came in and he said, I'm going to Japan. And I gave him some, a lengthy statement about Japan and how I'd been there and this was part was boring and this part was boring. And all of a sudden I realized that he'd never been to Japan and I had just done him a disservice. So I managed to change my sentence and said, you're going to have a great time, you're going to have your own experience, you're going to love it. Um, another ex example was that there was an, uh, an email trail where they were debating an HR issue and I knew the answer. Now it wasn't critical to the company and so I decided to see what would happen if I let intelligent people debate the outcome and they got to the right outcome. So I learned that sometimes when you're sort of the adult in the room, your job is a teaching moment and sometimes your job is a pressure moment. So I resolved to try to keep things legal and otherwise let the magic happen. And that worked pretty well. The founder sometimes, n not just Google, any, any founder uh, often carries at times a fair and, and, and at times an unfair weight in what people think about their opinions or their decision on where things will go. You know, how do you, as a CEO in that scenario, how did you carve out uh, that place for you where you, know, you gain respect, you gain credibility, and, and know when to say, hey, the founder's got this right vision, and no, this is the direction the company needs to go? It's in, in Silicon Valley, and I suspect here as well, founders have an unusual amount of power, uh, far more than they do in any other kind of entity. They are seen as you know, the parent and the visionary and the decider. They have enormous power over their boards and their investors and fundraising and so forth. And, uh, and they take risks that people like myself don't, so I have a lot of respect for them. So when I joined Google, the most important thing was that it was not my company, it was theirs. Right? I was hired to assist them in achieving their vision. If we disagreed, I always tried to be respectful of their vision while saying, well, maybe this is a little bit wrong or change it this way or so forth. Um, and the other characteristic of founders is that although they're often very, very self-involved, self shall we say, they do understand that they need help. They need help in areas where they're not strong, they frankly just don't have enough time, um, that kind of stuff. So I set out basically to fill in the voids and built, built credibility over time with that. I talk with every organization, every major organization in the world about entrepreneurship through Startup Grind. Uh, Google has a very unique place in the world for what they do to help entrepreneurs and I often say that no organization does more uh, for entrepreneurs, in my opinion, than Google for entrepreneurs and the uh, 50 partners, us being one that they, more than 50 partners that they support. Can you talk to us a little bit about 
why Google is supporting entrepreneurs, what they do for, for them, and you know, talk about uh, you know, Google for Entrepreneurs. Well, it, so one of the ideas that we had a few years ago was that we would be better off with more and more people in our ecosystem. And the best way to do that is to essentially help entrepreneurs be successful. That doesn't mean they're captive to us. They're still going to use competitor products and competitor ad systems and competitor platforms. But it seems one of the things that people don't understand when they view business is they assume that business is, um, how to describe it, it's a zero-sum game. That if company A wins, company B loses. I'll tell you that when Yahoo was young and Terry Selma was running it, whenever he and his company would win a deal, I would call him to congratulate him. And whenever we would win a deal, he would call me to congratulate me. Now, now by the way, we were tough competitors. Why would we do that? Because we both understood that we were building a larger market. So you can understand our, our goal as philanthropic, you can understand it as making the world a better place, but you can also understand it as self-interested in that building more people who understand the concepts of network computing and platforms and so forth benefits everyone, including Google. So it's a good decision from a shareholder perspective, it's a good decision from a people perspective, um, and frankly, it, it's, it's part of our mission is to stimulate it. We now have what you know as uh, the London campus, which was our first campus where we've spawned many, many companies already here in London. Uh, we now have seven or eight of them uh, around the world with more coming following the model that was developed here in London. Um, and one of the great things about being here over the last 10 years, 15 years at Google, but really in the last 10 years has been the development of an entrepreneurial scene here in London. Um, some of it is because this extraordinary train exists between Cambridge and King's Cross. And so you have people going back and forth between the extraordinary inventions and discoveries at Cambridge. Some of it has to do with the universities that are here. Some of it has to do with the fact that people from the continent are moving to London because it's a better, a better opportunity for entrepreneurs in their perspective. And partly it's because there's a lot of venture capital now. There are a few people that I have targeted that I have always wanted to meet and learn from and interview. Uh, one of those people uh, was Bill Campbell. And uh, I never, uh, never got an opportunity to do that, and he, he, he recently passed away. I wonder if you could just share with us some things that, what made him such a great mentor and coach? What made him the best? What's interesting about this fellow, Bill Campbell, and if you didn't have a privilege to know him, he was my sort of mentor, is that he mentored simultaneously the leadership of Apple and Steve Jobs and the uh, leadership of Google Alphabet in the form of myself, Larry Sergey. Um, he was on the board of Apple and he was an advisor to the Apple of Google. Um, this is unheard of. These are the number one and two most valuable companies in the world. Um, his background was in fact that he was a football coach, American football coach who had run up through sales, but he had an unusual ability to spot talent and to organize people and motivate them. And so when, in my case, what happened was uh, the venture capitalist John Doerr, who's himself accomplished, calls up and says, you need a coach? And I said, Bill, sorry, John, I am like a seriously senior executive with an arrogant attitude. I don't need a coach. So he argued with me for a while, but then he said, do tennis players have coaches? And I thought, I think he's got me there. Because how could a tennis player need a coach? Because the tennis player is the best. And indeed, coaches have a different skill than the players. And that's indeed what, what Bill was. And what he would do is he would wander around and deal with the many issues that companies that are growing fast happen, especially personnel issues. So what happens in these sort of um, heavy pressure environments 
is people get out of joint. They get upset over something. Um, they should have gotten promoted. They should have gotten this job. They were not treated properly. Um, the board was not nice to them. So-and-so insulted them. They have another offer and so forth. And he was particularly good at retaining and, and leading key talent. For those of you in the audience who are running companies, at the end of the day, it's product plus people. The product now has to be superb, and the global competition is fierce, and the people have to be incredibly good, because otherwise, you know, great people hire great people and so forth. How, how do you, you know, you're, put yourself in the shoes of an entrepreneur, you're trying to raise funding, you're trying to get people to buy into your idea, you're at the earliest stage, no one believes in you but, you know, your mom and dad and one of your sisters or something, and, and you're trying to convince people to join your mission and to drop everything else they're doing and work with you, is, I th I've been in this situation where you know, you, you're like, I need to just get the product to this point. Should I hire the, maybe they're not the best person, but they're okay or they're good. Do you make those exceptions in extreme circumstances or do you say, no, the, product's, the product can wait. It's not going to be done perfectly or the best that I know it can be. I need to just buy my time. So one of the things that we did that was most controversial was in refusing to hire any sort of normal people into roles, right? So what would happen is there would be somebody who had done something in the past, and we would famously decline them. And they were always references and so forth. We took the position that we would focus primarily on sort of innate ability, uh, interactions with others, educational achievement, and so forth, as opposed to experience. So this produced a relatively crazy, wild-eyed cult wide culture but one which was able to adapt to the environment around it. I remember in the early years, we were sitting there, and I had no idea what to do about a competitor at the time. I literally was clueless. And then I realized that I was also surrounded by the smartest people I could imagine to try to figure that out. So I figured my job was to ask them how to figure this out, right? Because I didn't need to know the answer. And so, so the idea of hiring people who have that kind of gift and fo focusing on it is key. Over and over again, as we've built the executive layers of the, of the company, we have refused to hire the classic or canonical example. Um, so uh, in the case of CFOs, we saw many CFOs who we thought were perfectly pleasant, uh, but they weren't very exciting, so we decided to hire a Rhodes Scholar instead who was, didn't want to be a CFO. He was a great CFO. We replaced him by an even more accomplished CFO who was doing other things as well. You just have to ask higher. And I understand how tough it is. You know, you're, the most important thing in a small company is to get the product to work. And if the product works and the strategy is compelling, you will be able to get funding. It's easy to fill in the sales and marketing stuff. It's really hard to get a product that's going to serve millions of people, solve business problems, deal with global competition, especially in such a crowded market with so many players now. Um, you know, Google just restructured uh, inside of and now has become, you know, uh, has gone inside of Alphabet and you have all these other companies. I wonder who in this space, in either maybe not inspired is the right word, but who do you look to in this space? You said, hey, we, we really respected how they did this and, and, you know, this, you know, became a good pattern for us to follow. Uh, who, is there anybody that you look to and said, hey, they've done a great job at, as they've grown to structure things better internally? What's interesting was that we studied this question of what we should become when we finally grew up. And when we got to 50,000 employees, we said, like, we've grown up finally. You know, you have your own internal view as a small company that had all these people attached to it. And um, 
what had happened, uh, I was CEO for a decade, then Larry was CEO for four or five years. And Larry kept saying, there's something wrong with the mission statement, the goals, and the structure. They're too diverse. So Larry spent quite a bit of time studying how Berkshire Hathaway was run. Um, and he admired and admires today Warren Buffett and that structure. And ultimately, he drove a process which caused Google to become Alphabet and Google become the subsidiary company with room for others. And um, of course, they're all different letters and um, the, um, the, each of the, the CEOs is called characters and you know, we have our, our internal jokes on this stuff. But you know, G, Google is the G and Nest is the N and so forth and so on. Uh, but the real goal and the serious goal is that these are serious businesses that will have their own incentive structure, their own leaders, their own financial planning structures, and they will succeed or fail based on the same principles that we did when we were much smaller. That's a pretty tough instruction. And if I could just describe big companies for a while, having spent a lot of time in big companies, big companies tend to want to do this, but they're also not willing to take the risks of doing so. So they end up with product market divisions, which are, quote, competitive with private companies, but they're not run like private companies. So Larry, in particular, took the position that if we're serious about this, we're going to do it. In a typical Google fashion, we announced this without having worked out all the details. Uh, I think it's now fairly clear how we're going to operate it. And again, we've had a good year as a result of this. Did you ever consider other names when you first heard Alphabet? Did you fall in love with it? Did you? There were a couple of different names, but I think everybody liked the notion of alphabets because we said, well, you know, we have letters, and then after a letter, we can move to transcendental numbers. You know, we have different naming schemes for everything. And you want to share? No. <laughs> I'm going to take a couple of questions from our live stream. We've got people around the world that are watching. One of those is, uh, what's the big, biggest problem that you're currently unable to solve? Quick break from the conversation with Eric for some recent startup headlines. SoftBank has announced that President and COO Nikesh Arora will be stepping down. There have been reports of allegations made by some investors which questions Arora's qualifications and his handling of certain deals. The company's founder and CEO, Masayoshi Son, suggested that Arora had been set to take over as chief executive, but he will now be delaying his own retirement and retain the post. Arora is now being moved to an advisory position. Adtech firm Intent Media has acquired hotel marketing startup Voyat for an undisclosed amount. New York-based Voyat provides a suite of tools aimed at improving customer retention. They've raised $3 million to date. California-based Hyperloop One has signed a memorandum of understanding with Russia's Suma Group to explore the possibility of connecting a Hyperloop system to Moscow's transport grid. This represents the first foreign arrangement for the Hyperloop One, which follows an agreement between rival Hyperloop transportation technologies the government of Slovakia. Let's get back to the interview with Eric Schmidt. I think the problem in any established company is the ability to bring in the, the leadership that can drive these businesses as fast as fast-growing startups. It used to be, if you go back to the you know, 30 years or 40 years ago for the ITT model, that there were huge advantages of being a, an industrial complex, right? And those have all essentially gone away because of the platforms we've built. So think about the, the, the applications that you use on Android and iPhone. And by the way, Android it comes first in terms of market share. We should add that. Um, think of the icons. Think of each of those in your mind represents a company that does something exceptional. 
So it's very difficult in a large company to identify those icons, the equivalent of that, and then organize around them. And so we spend all day trying to identify those people, getting them in the right position. And I think that is a perpetual problem. It's a problem of any large company. You helped uh, really coin this whole term cloud and this whole movement of, of cloud computing. Talk to us about what you, way before anybody, we're all talking about it until we're blue in the face now, but way before we were talking about it, you were talking about it. What are you thinking about now? What is coming? What are you excited about? Well, every generation is a new computing platform. So when I was a programmer, the new computing platform was Unix, and we were obsessed with Unix. This is, for you all, the predecessor of Linux, which is what you would, you would recognize it as. And I spent a great deal of time as a young executive negotiating with AT&T, getting the platform established, and so forth. And it ruled everything that I had as a, as a programmer, literally the interfaces, the platforms, and the work, the languages. This was my job. So for the last 45 years that I've been working in these platform spaces, I understand the power of these platforms because they define both the opportunity as well as the constraints on what you can build. And the industry goes through a series of these transitions. So we had the mainframe uh, revolution, the time-sharing revolution, the PC revolution, and the internet revolution. And the internet revolution should deliver new platforms. It's now clear what that platform looks like, by the way. And that platform is iOS and Android with a fast network and then APIs on the back end, which are known as cloud computing and machine learning. Now, the APIs that I'm describing on the back end are not file system commands and things like that. These are extremely powerful, what I would say, subroutines. The modern term is methods, um, which allow you to build systems that scale in computation. So we just announced, for example, as part of our Docker Kubernetes work, uh, as part of Google Cloud, a set of systems where you basically write something as a method, if you will, and then the system is so good at scheduling, it knows how many to run, how many to tell you when they're done, and so forth and so on. This uh, frees the programmer to work at a higher level. So the history of programming is always the programmers have more and more stuff below them that helps. The next layer, by the way, is machine learning, which is what, one of the things that we should talk a little bit about, that we just released a, a library called TensorFlow, which is open source, and again, much of the innovation in this industry is in open source. We gave it, by the way, to our competitors who are using it, which they are welcome to do. Um, and obviously, we offer TensorFlow on top of our platform. Some of those people are now offering their libraries on top of our TensorFlow on, on top of our platform. So the platform just gets stronger and stronger, and that's what cloud computing is about. The math is pretty interesting. The traditional IT business that's been built up over the last 20 or 30 years is some number of billions of dollars. It's like a very large number, 500 billion, some number like that, um, and depending on what numbers you use. Cloud computing is a very small component of that today. It's 4% or 5%. So for the next five to 10 years, all of the older systems, the ones that I sold in my previous companies, are gonna get be replaced by these cloud computing systems, and our market share will go from very low today to much higher and higher and higher. This comes again from the from our live stream. Um, in terms of messaging with apps like WhatsApp and Messenger and Slack, um, what where do you think Google plays in this space? And and uh, you know we have we have GChat, we have Gmail. Like what what is your what are your thoughts on messaging and so as, and mobile especially with that? Well, first place, um, Gmail is more than a billion users. Gmail, I think, is without question the number one email platform for both personal and enterprise computing. 
And um, if you have something that's secure that you want to keep to yourself, by far the safest place to keep it is in Gmail, right? Because it's the one that everybody's attacking all the time. We're quite sure that it's very well protected now. It's encrypted at rest, it's encrypted in transit, and so forth and so on. In messaging, the questioner probably is referring to companies like WhatsApp and so forth. We've taken a different approach. We've just announced a product called Allo, A-L-L-O, which will be released very soon. Um, which is similar, but uses machine learning to help you respond. And so it sort of, again, this is all opt-in with your permission, all that kind of stuff. What happens is it, it sort of understands your intent uh, based on what you've said to this particular entity on the other side, uh, and it suggests responses. And this is the beginning of what we call the assistant. So the company's overall strategy is to go from the traditional search model to having an assistant that is just makes you smarter. And these are some of the first implications of this. Uh, you're an investor, you're an advisor uh, to companies. What, tell us some of the advice that you give entrepreneurs as you meet with them, as you look at, as you look at pitches, as you look at products. Um, what do you, tell us about some of the things you so, talk, talk about. So one of the reasons why our industry is so tough is that just when you sort of figured it out, the rules change again. So I'll give you a simple example. If you went to business school, and I didn't, but I teach at business school, you would have been taught, build a great product, organize a sales force. You know, you and I talked about this in my previous roles. Um, sell it to the customer, charge a fair price, make the customer happy. Seems like that's what, what business is about, right? That strategy is insufficiently scalable in a global market that's all interconnected. So in other words, it sounds like a fine strategy, and it'll produce a reasonable business, but it's not going to produce a huge business. It's just too hard to hire all those salespeople, working with every customer, and so forth. You have to have a more clever strategy. So I can give you examples, but all of the really big companies have invented a new way to access information or a new way to do something that wasn't, didn't require that full cycle and all the time that is required. So many, many people talk to me about their new ideas, and I'm sure there are many of them represented here in the room. And the problem is they're, they're good, but they're not good enough. And so the specific question I would say is, you're, do a plan over the next five years, and I always like to do five-year plans, and try to figure out what your growth will be like, and then try to figure out what a, a more scalable strategy would be. So typical example is somebody will build some interesting app that they want to charge $10 for. And so I will ask, well, why couldn't you give the app away for free and then upsell the users? Everybody, and everybody here understands that strategy. I'll give you another example. Um, I'm quite convinced I know what the platforms will look like in five years. I can't tell you what the great companies will be like, but I'll describe it in the, that five years ago I said publicly, that the future will be apps that are on smartphones that use Google Maps, GPS, and do something useful. Now, what I should have said was Uber, right? But I wasn't smart enough to say, well, people actually want a personal transportation system. That was up for Travis and his co-founder uh, to invent in Paris when they were visiting. So what do I think five years from now we'll be talking about? I think we'll be talking about systems that use um, Android and iOS, fast networks, powerful machine learning, but they're gonna do something else. They're going to use the crowd to learn something. I'll give you a trivial example. Uh, I know nothing about dermatology, and I have a million dollars. 
So what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, run around to dermatologists. I'm going to pay them $1 to categorize skin samples with whatever the dermatological problem is. Put that into my machine learning system, run it through the system, have it do a categorization, and then I'm going to go and sell the same service to dermatologists because my system will be more accurate than the individual dermatological diagnoses. So that model, which is you crowdsource information in, you learn it, and then you sell it, is in my view a highly likely candidate for the next $100 billion corporations. I'm not suggesting it would be Alphabet or Uber or Facebook, but if I were starting a company, I'd start with that premise today. How can I use this concept of scalability and get my users to teach me? Right? So if your users teach me and then I can sell to them or others a service which is better than their knowledge, it's a win for everybody. Uh, and Steve, Steve Case, recently founder of AOL, recently wrote a book uh, called The Third Wave, and he talks about um, there kind of being a couple of things that the next wave of great technology companies are going to have. One of the things that he talks about is policy. And um, I wonder if you could, you're very involved, obviously, in your capacity at Alphabet, as well as personally, um, and, and in, in the kind of the political system. I wonder if you could tell us, as a startup, how do I need to be thinking about policy? How do I, or do I not think about it until I get to, to I scale? Would, or Well, as long as you're doing something that's, that's you know, legal, you should be okay at ignoring. We're all, le these are all legal kinds yeah, of entrepreneurs. As long as you're here. in the legal department. You're Very legal fine. people. Um, so the reason I, if I go back to my advice to startups, focus on product, focus on product, focus on product, you can always deal with the policy issues later as long as you're following the law, as long as you don't get sued to death. Um, if you're going to get sued to death, then you've got a different problem. You've got to figure that out pretty early. Again, using Uber as an example, uh, without commenting on legality, if you look at their corporate history, they were sued in every city they operated, and they're su sued in Europe today. So that had to be a component of their business strategy. But that's not the norm, right? The norm is, is not in that kind of realm, you know, thank goodness. In our case, um, we were able to essentially hide uh, under the, we're a startup, we're doing interesting innovation, we have happy users, and it wasn't until we had a pretty big global scale that we had to start to worry a lot about regulation of information, our role, and those sorts of things. Do you think, uh, we've seen Google take, uh, I'm sorry, Google previously and, and you know, now, now Alphabet, we, we've seen take stances on public policy issues. Um, BuzzFeed recently took the stance on, on a, a candidate uh, not to be named, uh, that they would not run ads uh, due to, you know, that they thought the, you know, that had such a negative impact on the world and on, um, and on America that they would not, you know, get involved in that. Do you, do you see Google, like, where, well, do you see Google uh, doing things like that? And second, where do you draw that line of so where you get involved and where you stay out? Uh, very good question. So we, we've always had a policy that the company does not have a policy in these areas, although individuals can have their own political beliefs. And given that the company uh, has a lot of its employees in the Bay Area, you can imagine that many of the employees are quite liberal, uh, as, as is that area. Um, there was a, an interesting case where we chose to violate that rule, and it had to do with um, the treatment of gay people in California. And we actually were so upset about uh, the proposals to restrict gay rights, that the company took a position of that. So I think I can say with certainty that we're going to take a position 
involving diversity, equal treatment of people, fairness, diversity, gay rights, so forth. We're going to be very pro all of those things. Um, and I think on other matters, the company will probably not take a position. And in particular, the company has not, since you asked a specific question about BuzzFeed, we have not taken a position on the American election, nor do I expect us to. Um, Mark Andreessen was interviewed yesterday, and he made a comment that uh, he sees companies doing a lot more acquisitions due to the falling valuations and a lot of private companies scrambling over the next you know, 12 to 24 months. What is your take on that? Do you, do you, is There's this a, a time to buy or is this a time no. to wait? I, I don't think I'm the right person to give you investment advice. I think um, there's a lot of evidence that there is a slowing of things. Um, it's true globally, by the way. It's not true just in our industry. But my venture capital friends say that uh, valuations are somewhat down. Um, there's not been as many exits as people thought there would be. Um, no one knows how long these periods go. But I will tell you one interesting thing I have learned during these periods is this is when the strong companies get stronger and the weaker companies have trouble. And so the tough times in many ways benefit entrepreneurs who are capable of wiggling, if you will, to get the revenue that they need to hold it. And they learn incredibly important lessons in difficult times. It's so much tougher to be a, a successful entrepreneur when you're under a lot of revenue pressure than when money is flowing at a very high rate, which it has been for the last few years. And the last few years have been uh, abnormal with respect to the leverage of the entrepreneurs over venture capitalists in terms of the negotiations. And we may be returning to a more balanced period, and, but no one really knows. Um, and I would defer to Mark's other comments because he lives in that space. Sure. Um, uh, do you think with... And with, you know, it's, it's kind of a mixed signal, right? Because you have these kind of negative uh, uh, signals and some slowing investment. And yet you see these firms raising billion-dollar funds. Again, this has happened in Q1, Q2. It's ha that, it's not, that, it hasn't slowed down. That I can't comment on. Yeah. Sometimes the, one of the things about these capital investment cycles is sometimes you get misalignment where money is being spent where money shouldn't be spent or money is being raised too soon. It can also be a case where the opportunities are phenomenal and not enough money is being raised. So they may get slightly out of alignment over, over a long enough period of time. It does, it does straighten out. Um, in Google's case, we have made a decision to significantly increase our investments in Google Ventures here in Europe as well as in, uh, as in America because we've done so well in our investments. It's been so strategic both financially as well as strategically it's worked. So we may be a counter signal to that. In other words, we may be one of the few that's, that's going to continue to invest pretty heavily. We, we see founders, you know, there are founders like Atlassian, which is a Sydney-based company, founders IPO with about 67% of the equity. And we see other founders inside of Silicon Valley and, and, and other places with low single digits uh, equity. What would you tell a founder uh, they should do to protect and to, to hold on to their equity. What advice would you give them? Well, the, I can always tell when we're dealing with a proper founder when we start with how are they spending their money. And so whenever I go into a startup that has beautiful offices and really nice chairs, I cringe. Because that means that they haven't quite figured out that it's not their money, unless it is their money, in which case they can waste it on that. Um, when I joined Google, the, um, I was given an office and I had a little corner of a desk with four other engineers. 
Um, eventually, I was given an 8 by 12 office where my desk was a door with um, whatever, uh, hobby horses, whatever they are. Like the tabletop was Table, a door? Tabletop, literally a door, uh, which I've retained to try to remind myself of what it takes to be successful. So my office today has that door in it. Uh, the great founders are frugal. They understand that the money needs to be used precisely for certain areas. Many of the most successful founders begin with no salary at all. Um, you know, I have lots of stories about Larry and Sergey, but let's just say that when I started, um, one of them was having trouble with his car, so I had to loan him his car because his car broke down, my car, because he broke down. I mean, that's the kind of stuff we're talking about. And um, so if you're not prepared to live that, you don't really understand what being a founder is like. I mean, I mean, for me, you know, I'd love to be a founder. I'd love to have a nice corner office with a beautiful view and lots of secretaries. And all this. That's not how it works, right? And the great founders always started that way. So that should give you some data. You could be anywhere right now. You could be on a super yacht somewhere if you wanted. Why, what, what still drives you? Why do you... What, what 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 keeps you up? What what gets you going? What excites you? Why why keep at it? For the last few years, I spent a lot of my time on public policy, and I've had the privilege of meeting a lot of governments and a lot of time that I've decided this, to sort of go back to science and technology in a deeper way. I'm incredibly excited about uh, AI and machine learning. I'm incredibly excited about what's going on with biology. I, I want to mention, by the way, that there is a group here called DeepMind, which is the one of the greatest British success stories, I think, of the modern age, um, and the inventions that have occurred here in King's Cross, which I've been an observer and a promoter of, are really historic. So young groups, new ideas, and so forth, that's what I want to spend my time on. Um, I would tell you as a, as, a, as a finishing sentence, as a society, we spend all of our time complaining about things the way they are, rather than just fixing them. And whether it's in food or in water or in uh, environmental issues or housing or uh, self-driving cars or in cancer and so forth and so on, smart people have figured out solutions that might just solve these problems. And the more emphasis we can put, emphasis we can put as a society on those, the quicker we can really make the world a better place for millions and millions of people. And that's what I want to be part of. Eric Schmidt, thank you for being here.